Well, we're, we're launching into a new series here. You can see behind me called What We Believe. We spent the last six or seven weeks in a series called Being the Church. So we thought that maybe a good extension from that would be uh, to kind of break down what our statement of faith says. We haven't done that, I think, since the first year that we were actually a, a church that we started gathering. And um, so we thought it would be a good time to do that. A little unusual for us these last couple of series. So if you're new here, what we normally do is we preach through books of the Bible. And you can look forward to that in January. We're going to be kicking off a little bit of a longer extended series through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, but for now, we're going to break this down for the next few weeks, uh, right before we go into a, a series through Advent. So um, looking forward to that. I'm also going to have you do something a little different than we normally do. I want you to have your Bibles, your devices ready, but I'm not going to have you turn to a, a passage until we get a little bit closer to the end because I'm going to be doing just this rapid-fire thing through all kinds of different passages. And I, th- I don't know if you could keep up because it's going to be fast. And I don't want to wear out your thumbs. I don't want to wear out your mind. So um, if you can just follow along with me, that's how we're going to roll out with it. Uh, this morning, again, a little bit different for what we do. Um, Well, to begin a series on what we believe, we must begin with God. We have to begin with God. We're compelled as a church to not begin with anything other than God, because God is at the beginning of everything that ever was and everything that we are and everything that we'll ever do. So imagine, uh, you know, going to the grand opening of, say, like a sports complex where they're having a a dedication ceremony for some famous athlete that they're going to name the complex after. So you sit down, a speaker steps up to the podium, and she spends an hour telling you all about this sports complex uh, all about the team of architects that, that designed it. You know, she gets into all the, all the state-of-the-art design from a technological standpoint that they use to, to build it and make it this amazing place. And all the good, she says, that it's going to provide for the city and the jobs that it's going to create. And then she finishes, and man, you're, you're ready for opening day. You're excited to step into this new sports complex. But As you walk in, it dawns on you that at no point did she ever once mention uh, the the legendary athlete that the complex is actually named after. She never mentions his name, uh, never mentions his contribution to the sport or all the records that he holds or or anything about his family or his personal history. I mean, you would just kind of walk in wondering how she could have missed something so foundational since this sports complex was named in honor of him and it was dedicated to his legacy. So in the same way, if we talk about what it means to be the church, we must start at the beginning and it just so happens that the church is not the beginning. We must begin with God and then God's word and specifically what is true about God and his word so that we know what we believe about him. So this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to begin this morning as we take, again, like I said earlier, the next month or so unpacking our statement of faith. And it's a statement of faith that comes from the denomination of churches that we're affiliated with. Maybe some of you guys don't know. Maybe some of you guys thought, man, you guys just, you guys dress so casual. I just assumed you were an independent church. Um, We're not. We're part of a church called the Evangelical Free Church 
of America. And this is how they would describe who they are. So I'm going to use a quote from them. Um, We are an association and fellowship of autonomous and interdependent churches united around the same statement of faith. And it's that statement of faith um, that you can find on our website and in our membership booklet. And it's the one that we hold to. And you might also be wondering with that, what the heck is a statement of faith exactly? Well, this is what it is. It's a document that declares what we believe about God, what we believe about the Bible, about Jesus Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about the human condition, uh, about our eternal destiny, and so on and so forth. Those are some of the things that we're going to unpack over the next month. And a, a good statement of faith should be deeply rooted and grounded in Scripture. And in fact, um, when we read our statement of faith, and we're going to read two of the articles from it, the first two articles from it this morning, but when you read a good statement of faith and our statement of faith, it will actually feel as if you are reading Scripture because it has been drawn from the very pages of Scripture. So just right from the very beginning, if you're wondering, well, man, we're just going to be taking these things that people have written about Scripture, but it's been drawn from Scripture. It's been assembled from Scripture. So from the very beginning, when we even begin to talk about God and the Bible as it's laid out in our statement, you can have confidence that this was taken from the very words of Scripture. It's kind of like when you, when you buy vegetables from, from a farmer's market. We do that the Ashland Farmer's Market. We see some of you guys there too. And you see us buying um, not just vegetables, but a lot of uh, baked goods as well. Um, But it's kind of like when you buy vegetables from a farmer's market and there's still dirt on the carrots and on the potatoes, right? And and what's good about that is that you know they're, they're fresh and they're unprocessed because you can see evidence that they've been plucked recently from the soil. And our Our statement of faith is the same way in that it's been plucked from the soil of God's Word. And then it's been assembled in a way that allows us to very clearly declare and understand what we believe as a church. So the statement of faith, in a sense, it kind of serves as our guardrails. Like if you've ever walked over a suspension bridge... Maybe some of, you got, some of you guys have watched, you know, walked over one of these suspension. It's actually, it's horrifying, right? I mean, I mean, these things, like you're way above there and the thing is just like, oh my gosh, like who, like who thought this was a good idea? And aren't these things supposed to be secure? You know, all these things going through my mind as I'm walking over one of these bridges. But you can feel that the reason why it's unsettling is because that thing shifts from side to side beneath your feet. But as long as you keep your hands on the guardrails, you'll keep from losing your balance and falling to your death, right? Um, That's what our statement of faith helps us do. As long as it remains our guardrails to the scriptures, we can trust that we won't be, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And that's what the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 4. So, So that's what our statement of faith does. It's, it's declaring what Scripture has already declared in a way that helps us sort of bring in the parameters of what we believe and then gives us guardrails to hold on to so that we don't stray from it. Because at the end of the day, we are prone to wander as we sing in that song that we sing so often that I can't remember the name of right now because I'm in front of all of you guys. And that's what happens. But that's what our statement of faith does. It serves as guardrails. Two last things before we get into 
the particulars, all right? A statement of faith is not inspired scripture. Even though it's derived from scripture, it's not the same thing as inspired scripture. It is inspired by scripture, all right? It is a statement that reflects the truth of the gospel. Just like when you say, if you make this statement, if you say, Jesus Christ is Lord, well, that's true, but that's not inspired scripture, but it is a statement that reflects the truth of what scripture declares. And so the reason why I want to point this out is because it's an important distinction to make because a statement of faith can, can be changed. It can be tightened up. It can be edited. We don't do that with scripture, on the other hand. But that's what a statement of faith is. It's a statement about the faith we hold to that comes from God's inspired and holy word. Secondly, a statement of faith is not meant to make us theologically arrogant or haughty, right? Um, It's actually meant to humble us by reminding us of the glory of God and his plan to redeem and restore us from the wages of our sin, which were death, right? It's meant for us to see God and all of his beauty and all of his majesty and all of his holiness and his steadfast love and his abundant grace and his rich mercy. That's what it's meant to point us back to and to ground us in. So what we really want to do today, rather filling up our minds with a bunch of information, is we want to walk away today with a renewed love and a renewed thankfulness for who God is and to wonder in our minds like the psalmist in Psalm 8 when he asked God, who is man that you are mindful of him? So when we see just the majesty and the beauty and just the the bigness and the ginormousness of God, we want to walk away thinking, it is astounding to me that God pays mind to me, one of his sinful fallen creatures, and that he has the level of intentionality and fatherliness and love and care and compassion towards me. That is what a statement of faith is supposed to do, not just in our heads, but in our heart. Does that make sense? So we want to walk away today with a refreshed and a renewed sense of God and the God who has spoken through his word. So that's what we're going to attempt to do. And so what we're going to do, if you look on your bulletin, on the back of it, um, I think it's the back of it, we're going to read the first two articles together of our statement, which is kind of a creed for us. And then I'm going to spend a few minutes just unpacking each of them. And then we're going to finish by looking into how we need to respond uh, to them. So the first one, I guess it wasn't on the back. It's somewhere on the inside. There it is. The first one says, we believe in God. So that's the first, this is the first article is what it's called. Article one of our statement of faith. Let's read this together out loud right now. We believe in God. We believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. Amen. So we begin with God because 
the gospel originates and expresses the wondrous perfections of this eternal triune God. And so the gospel, which, let me just tell you what the gospel is again. The good news of Jesus coming into the world to save sinners, it begins with God. So what do we believe about God? Now, man, if you go deep into our statement of faith, into the documents that exist within our denomination, man, it's pages upon pages of all the different things we can unpack about God. I just took a few, or else we would be here until four in the afternoon and maybe even later than that, right? Um, so I just took a few that I wanted us to sort of just to, to dig down deep into. And the first one is that God is the creator. God is creator. Genesis 1.1 tells us that right from the top. The first words of Scripture is what? In the beginning, who? God created the heavens and the earth. So the first thing that uh, Moses, who is... is what most people consider to be the writer of Genesis, wants us to know is that in the beginning, before everything else, there was God, and He created the heavens and the earth. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews 11, verse 3, says, by faith, listen to this, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So we believe in the sovereign Lord and creator of all things. And that's significant for us because it lets us know who God is and who we are and who we are not. We are not the creator of anything. We are the created. We are his creatures. And as creatures, we have a particular responsibility in the way that we are commanded to respond to our Creator. And if you are somebody that has been saved by the gospel, if you've been saved by the person and work of Jesus Christ, what that means is now you are in a place to understand who you are as a creature in your creatureliness and that you can rightly respond to God as your Creator. It's an amazing thing for us to know that in the beginning it was God who created the heavens and the earth. It puts us in our place. It puts us in a place of looking up and acknowledging God to be above all things. That is so important for us. That is so important for us to reflect on and to believe and to tell ourselves and be told week in and week out as we gather together. Secondly, God is holy. So God is the creator, but God is also holy. In Exodus chapter 15, 11, It writes, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, lowercase? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? So there is this sense when we think about God's holiness that we want to be asking that same question. That's a good question to ask, right? God, who is like you? Because rather than just taking God and trying to bring him down to our level... It keeps God as creator, and it keeps him set apart. And the more that we understand as God being creator and him being holy and set apart, it helps us understand what our place is before him. It helps us understand that we aren't people that just can stand on our own two feet. But we have our breath and our being and every movement and every thought comes to us from a sovereign 
creator who is set apart and holy. Ligonier Ministries, um, they talked about God's holiness like this. I have a quote from them. It's really good. Listen to what they say. They say, to be holy is, first and foremost, to be set apart from what is common. So this helps us start to understand what this word holiness means. And then they go on to say, it is to be different or unique in comparison to this world. God is holy because he is more set apart from his creation than anything or anyone else. Basically, it goes on to say, God's holiness is a function of his transcendence. Because he is high and exalted, nothing in creation can match the Lord in his glory and power and purity. And we are in the place that God has designed us to be when we are standing before God in worship of his power, of his glory, and of his unmatchedness. I don't know if that's a word. But that's where we find ourselves in a place where we will be able to experience the highest level of joy in our lives. Is when we are acknowledging God as creator, as holy, as set apart, as not common. And by the way, this holiness that is, that is just, you, you can't even, it, it's just, it, you, you can't separate it from who God is. We also, like God, get to become holy. We get to have some of that attribute that is already ingrained through in and throughout God himself. We become more holy, more set apart, less common like God as we are more conformed into the image of God's Son. So you see the way all this is coming. It's, it's, you see how all this is sort of moving and, and, and weaving in and out as we talk about that we begin with God. We believe in God before everything else because it sets the stage for everything else that we believe that comes from that knowledge of God and who God is. Thirdly, God is loving. So God is the creator. God is holy, but God is loving. 1 John 4.8 tells us anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. So God is not just somebody who is merely loving, but this is somebody who you can't, you can't take the word love and sort of put it on the shelf and say, here's God and sometimes he's loving, right? That would be Ronnie Martin. Here's Ronnie and occasionally, on his good days, he can be a loving guy. But what we're told in Scripture is that God embodies love. He is love, right? God is love. And by the way, God's love is complementary with his holiness. So you think of this, this set-apartness, this, 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 uh, this sense of him being unique and not common, but it's his love that complements that holiness because his love is a perfectly holy love. And his holiness is perfectly loving. And of course, God's greatest expression of love was sending his son Jesus to the cross. His greatest expression of of love, which was an expression not only of his holiness, but of his fatherliness, right? Man, and that's so helpful for us this morning to remember that God is love, and his love is like that of a father. I don't know if you've seen this video. It, w- it went viral a couple days ago. Um, there was a school in Louisiana, and they'd been having all kinds of just, just problems with kids getting in fights and violence, 
And eight or nine dads came together and they started this thing called Dads on Duty. And they made t-shirts because that's what you do when you start things, right? And um, they showed up at this school and, you know, with full permission from the, the faculty, um, man, they just hang out and they just encourage the kids. Man, they, they just, they, they use positive reinforcement um, and they are available. They sacrifice their time for these kids as a way to make peace. And since that's happened, the violence and the fighting has basically almost gone down to zero. And if you've, if you've not seen the video, watch the video. You'll, you'll be able to find it. But it's, t- it's so touching. It's so powerful. Our hearts are so drawn to this. Why is that? Well, because we see dads who are loving and sacrificing, not, not only for their own kids, but for their kids' friends and all the kids' that comprise their, their community and, and their neighborhoods because they want to see these young men and women flourish, right? So we're drawn to that. We're, we're drawn to that type of sacrificial love. We're so drawn to that sense of, of fatherliness. It just touches us. It just hits us. It feels right because it is right, Right? Because there's something that God has placed in us that is drawn to that level of care and that level of compassion, right? That's why this video has gone so viral. And by the way, man, not all of us have a dad like that. So these eight or nine dads, you know, um, that sacrifice their time to this degree, that care about their community to this level, some of us didn't have a dad that was like that. Some of you had horrible fathers. Man, what a grief that is. But think of who you have with God as your father. He's not like our human dads who sometimes weren't there, who oftentimes made massive mistakes, who didn't always fulfill the role that they were called to fulfill. But with God as our father, we have a father who is perfectly loving, who is perfectly holy, who's created us so that we could worship him and he could get near to us and show us his care and his compassion. So God is, God is loving. Finally, and this is, this is all we're going to say about God because it's all we have time for. God is triune. God is, God is three persons in one God because only persons can love, Right? Understanding and believing that there is one God in three persons revealed in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is something that's central to our faith. It's something that is essential to our salvation. Um, This is what the EFCA would say about that. Here's a statement. They say, listen, it's important. The Trinitarian union, I know that's a big word, of the Father and the Son makes it possible for the judge, God, who loves sinners, to maintain his justice by taking judgment upon himself in the death of his son. Man, just with that statement, we begin to see this Trinitarian union and how it is, it is part and parcel to everything that Scripture is and what Scripture teaches. And then the Holy Spirit 
His role is that he comes in, he, is, he seals that truth. He applies this truth to our hearts. It is a beautiful union that, by the way, we see in Scripture most visibly in the baptism of Jesus. When he is baptized, the Father's voice comes from the heavens saying, this is my son, listen to him. And then the Holy Spirit comes in the manifestation of a dove and lands on him. The FCA further goes on to say there is one God, but this one God has never been alone. That's important for us to remember as we talk a lot about community in our church. Our community is grounded in a triune God. That's why it's important that we, even though it's a mystery, there's a lot about it that's hard for us to understand, and we want to do everything we can to understand what we're able to and believe it. So again, the statement says there's one God, but this one God has never been alone. God was love within himself before he ever created a world to love. For within himself, the Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Father, and the Holy Spirit was caught up in this unity of love. So there are four things there that we know what we believe to be true without God. I mean, we could go on and, and talk about 40 more things. But to summarize very, very briefly, very incompletely, this tells us something about God and why when we're talking about what we believe, we must begin with God. Because he's the sovereign Lord and creator over and above all things. He is the object of our worship. He is the giver of our life. He is the redeemer of our souls. He is the almighty I am and ruler of the universe. We exist because he has never not existed. Man, if that does your head in, it's supposed to. But let it, let it do your heart in as well, right? All right, let's go back to our bulletins, and we're going to read Article 2, which says we believe in the Bible, and then we'll unpack that for a couple of minutes. Let's read this together. We believe that God has spoken in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired Word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. Amen. So the gospel is authoritatively revealed in the scriptures. That's why we have the scriptures. So what do we believe about the Bible? Well, the first thing is the Bible is God's spoken word. Genesis 1-3, what does it say? God said, let there be light. And there was light. God spoke to create. He spoke everything that we see created into creation. But from the beginning, God also spoke personally to communicate with those creatures that he uniquely created in his image. This is how we have God's word. So whether you have a device right now, whether you have a paper Bible, this is the word, this is how it was given to us. He spoke through human authors whom he inspired 
through the Holy Spirit to write and preserve his words to us. Here's what the EFCA says, right? When we say that the Bible is a verbally inspired book, we mean that God has worked by his Holy Spirit through the personality, life experiences, and literary talents of its human authors to produce the very words that God, listen, desired to be written to reveal himself and his purposes to human beings. The Apostle Peter describes this process as men speaking from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that, man, that is the briefest overview of how God's Word came into being as being something that he spoke into existence, spoke the world into existence, and then inspired men to write to communicate to us what his plan and his intentions were toward us. And of course, the pinnacle of God's spoken word is none other than Jesus Christ. That's why we go back to Jesus every time. It's God's word who became flesh. And God spoke to us through his son in the most personal way possible. God's word, listen to this, reminds us that God is a personal and a relational God. The Bible is God's spoken word. The pinnacle of that spoken word is God's Son, who John says was the word made flesh. Secondly, the Bible is without error. Matthew 5.18, Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Here's what the FCA says about this. Because the Bible is the word of an all-knowing, all-truthful God, we affirm that the Bible is wholly true and without error, and it can be trusted in all that it teaches. It's also infallible. And what that means is that it will not fail to accomplish all that God has written in it. So we believe that the Bible is without error. Finally, we believe that the Bible is complete. It's sufficient. It's everything that God wanted to say to us. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So God has spoken all we need to know for Christian faith and life, for our doctrine and for our duty. This is what's called the sufficiency of of scripture. It's everything that God intended us to have. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3:15, from infancy, listen to this, you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that other non-biblical books are not valuable in helping us understand scripture more completely. We're going through a book study right now through what? Gentle and lowly. How helpful has that been in understanding the heart of Christ? So it's not to say that those books aren't necessary or needed. We believe they are. It just means that Scripture in and of itself contains everything we need for salvation in Christ. Does that make sense? It's kind of like when someone gives you a list of ingredients and says, this is all you need to prepare the meal based on the recipe. It's all there. This is what Scripture contains. It's sufficient. So to summarize, we want our hearts to be filled with God's Word because they bring life and light. The deeper we go into them, the more we engage with them, the more 
we find them and we see them as our treasure. So here's how we're going to close. We're going to close by talking about how we should respond to God and his word. Now I'm going to have you get busy with your Bibles here a little bit. Let's go to Isaiah 66, verses 1 Actually, I I messed that up. It's Isaiah 6. It's Isaiah's vision of the Lord. And it says, In the year, I'm going to pick up with verse 1 as you're getting there. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Now let's key in here on verse 5. And I said, this is Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. How should we respond to God and to God's word? Isaiah clues us in here by saying we should respond, first of all, with humility. What does it mean to be humbled by God's holiness? Well, it means that you behold something greater than you And then you respond appropriately like Isaiah. It means you know who you are not because you know who God is. When we read about Isaiah's encounter with God here, you know what he's basically saying? He's saying, I am ruined because I have beheld the glory of God. I've done what my eyes and my entire being has no capacity to live through which is the majesty and the power and the holiness of God. This gives us some idea about who this God is, that by his word, he created all things. Let there be light. What happened after that? There was light. I can't get my cat to do what I ask him to do. Let there be light, and there was light. And here's what's beautiful. God receives us lovingly and patiently and mercifully in our humble approach toward him. Look down at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Because Isaiah went before the Lord in humility. So we respond to God and his word first off with sobriety, with humility, with remembering who we're dealing with. Secondly, we respond in awe. Let's turn to Deuteronomy. You're going to make a hard left. Chapter 10. Deuteronomy 10 verse 17. We respond in humility but also in awe. Let me read verse 17. It says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. 
He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Awe is the response that comes as the result of humility before God. Let me describe it like this. When you stand on the edge of the Empire State Building, maybe some of you have actually done that, you're humbled by the height and the structure of just this magnificently designed building. But something happens when you're standing on the edge of this structure. You're careful not to get too close to the edge. On one hand, there's a humility there. But what a shame if it doesn't cause you to feel overwhelmed by the beauty that you now get to behold as that structure has elevated you into the sky and created the vision for you that you now have. We should be overwhelmed by God and His Word when we consider all that He is, all that He has done, all that He is doing. His caring and just heart for the oppressed. His fatherly love for the outsiders and the immigrants of the world. Where we close our arms to the marginalized, God opens them all the wider. Do we need a practical example of that? He did it with you. You are the outsider. You are the one that needed a God who was so fatherly that despite your rebelliousness and your sin against Him, He went, come on in. That produces a humility that leads to an awe of that character that we see revealed to us in Scripture about God. So our response needs to be awe. Thirdly, gratitude. Our response needs to be gratitude. Turn to Psalm 50. I got you going now. Psalm chapter 50. I'm going to pick up in verse 14. It says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. And then you go down to verse 23 and it says, Therefore, who offers sacrifice, the one who offers sacrifice, thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So with humility and awe comes a sense of gratitude. You know, when someone goes to, you've probably experienced this, when someone goes to all kinds of trouble to say, they plan an elaborate party for you. They buy you, man, just some amazing, extravagant gifts. You feel humbled that they have gone to all this trouble for you. You feel overwhelmed by how much time and effort that they spent to honor you. This leads to gratitude. It leads to a heart of deep thankfulness for them and who they are. It's not, not really about the party or the gift at all, is it? It's about the heart behind it all. And we are filled with gratitude when we consider God and His Word and how He spoke to us for the sake of His glory, which is the very thing that leads us to joy and fulfillment in this life. So we respond in gratitude. We give of our time. We give of our talent. We give of our resources because God, listen, has freed our hearts 
to do so. That's why we do that prayer of thanksgiving in the liturgy. Because we want to acknowledge, we don't pass around a plate here. Maybe we should, I don't know. We have conversations about that. But we haven't done that. We have giving boxes. Again, if you have thoughts about that, I'm all ears. Um, But we offer a prayer of thanksgiving, acknowledging, Lord, you've given us all these things. It's just our job to steward the gifts you've given us. We don't want these gifts to enslave us. We don't want those gifts to cause us to bunch up inside and become stingy. But we want to feel free because of the lavish generosity that you have. It fills us with thankfulness. Finally, we respond with adoration. One more time. Psalm 150, very end of the psalm, book of Psalms. In the final verse, it says, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary, it says in verse 1. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. So gratitude needs to express itself. You realize that when you're thankful for something, you need to express that. So we praise God because He has spoken, because His words are true, and they lead to eternal life when they are believed. Here's my question. Why do you talk to your friends the day after a famous athlete makes an amazing play and relive the moment over and over, and might I add, over again? That play has already happened. It's already been accomplished. You can't add to it, right? Everyone can already see the replay on YouTube. Why do you continue to talk and talk? And talk about it. Why is that the topic of conversation at your work all day? Because it's worthy of praise. Because you're humbled by the greatness of it. Because you're in awe as you reflect on the skill of the athlete who accomplished it. You're thankful that you were able to watch and be a part of that moment. So gratitude needs to express itself. And God has called his people to express their gratitude to him in adoration, because he is God and he has spoken. So imagine a God powerful beyond our ability to fathom, knowledgeable beyond our ability to understand, but also so loving, so gracious, so merciful, so compassionate that he not only spoke his word to us, but he made it personal by giving it to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. What we believe begins with a sovereign, uncreated God who created us, spoke to us, sent his son to us, and calls us to respond in humility, in awe, in gratitude, and adoration. This is the path to life for all who receive, for all who believe it. So, We remind ourselves of it. We encourage one another with it. And we become a church who grows deeper in Christ because of it. Amen? Let me pray. God, we thank you for you. We thank you that you are a sovereign, gracious, merciful, loving, triune God who has spoken. Lord, let us receive these words today as we're reminded of who you are. Let it continue to change us to sanctify us, to draw us more deeply in affection to Christ because you have come down to us in Jesus. 
You have made it possible that we can have a relationship with you. Our sin doesn't have to be a barrier anymore if we come to you in humility, asking for forgiveness, believing the truth that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of which we are the chiefs. So God, let this truth continue to thrill us and humble us and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.